10 is where we will be today. We're continuing our study of the Gospel according to John and continuing this topic of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Our text begins today with a mention of the, in John 22, the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication. And John is good about this in his Gospel where he, he helps to mark time or help, helps us see things chronologically because he, he marks the place in Jesus' ministry with these various feasts so that we can kind of understand where things are in the timeline of Jesus' life. Uh, this feast of dedication is interesting because it's not a feast that was instituted by God. It's not a feast that you would find in the Old Covenant, in the Law of Moses, but it's a feast that the Jewish people kind of inaugurated on their own. About 150 years before the birth of Christ, uh, there was a man, maybe you've heard of him, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was the ruler of Syria, and Syria was oppressing the uh, Jewish people, and they eventually took control over the temple itself. And uh, this man was a pagan, and he went into the temple, this was prophesied, at least one of the fulfillments in the prophecy in Daniel that talks about the uh, abomination of desolation. But this man goes into the temple, he, he destroys, removes the altar to Yahweh, to God, and he puts up an altar to Zeus, a pagan god, in the temple of God, and he sacrifices a pig on that altar. So he did about everything he could to desecrate the temple. Uh, during this time, it was actually around 160 B.C., it was a capital offense to possess the Hebrew Scriptures. So any person that had the Old Testament could have been put to death. And it's just a real... Um, showing there of God's providence to preserve the Bible over all these years. That there were these emperors that would have killed a person for, for holding the Scriptures. But in spite of all of that, God preserved His Word throughout the centuries. Uh, the, the Jewish people pushed back after this man took over the temple and they began to practice guerrilla warfare. They got control of their temple and they had a celebration. It was an eight-day-long celebration uh, to, to celebrate the reconsecration of the temple. And as legend goes, they had a very small amount of oil to put in the candles of the menorah, but they said that God kept that oil burning for eight days. Thus they call it the Festival of Lights, what you may have heard of known as Hanukkah. So this feast here is actually uh, Hanukkah that, that is being celebrated, not something that was in the Old Testament instituted, but that the Jews kind of came up with later. But that's the context that we find ourselves in. That's what's taking place. Even though these two stories are side by side in the Bible and they have similar themes, it seems like they are separated by a decent amount of time. The text we looked at last week and the text we will look at today. So John chapter 10 is where we are. And we will begin in verse 22. Verse 22. <clears throat> at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works, Father. For which of them do you stone me? Are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods, little g-gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the work that you may know and understand that the Father is in and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we open it now, we pray that you might instruct us from it, that you might feed us from it, that our souls might be strengthened and encouraged and replenished and challenged if need be. I pray that you would speak through me now, Lord, keep uh, any, any error, would it fall on deaf ears? Uh, we just ask your blessing on this word. We again trust and believe that your word does not return void. So we pray that you might work through the proclamation of your word. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's Charlotte. Uh, so, Jesus, as we have seen throughout this, this gospel, is not the most popular person around, right? He is not just wandering around, having his peaceful ministry uh, where everyone is, is loving him and celebrating him and, and respecting him. But what we've seen all throughout this book is actually the exact opposite. Uh, we have seen Jesus' character be called into question. Right, we saw even a couple weeks ago, the folks, the, the Pharisees were telling uh, the blind man, come on, we know this guy's a sinner. Just, just tell us it's true. We already know. Uh, so they're questioning his character. Uh, we've seen the validity of his miracles being challenged. In John chapter 9, they didn't even believe that the blind man had actually been blind at first. They were questioning that. We have seen his commitment to the law of God be challenged as time and time again they've, they've claimed that he is a Sabbath breaker. His sanity has even been brought into question. As we've seen, I think, multiple times, he's been called insane. And we also uh, saw even here that there is questions of him maybe being possessed by a demon. That's pretty much everything that they could lob at Jesus to assassinate his character and to discredit his ministry, they have done. Over and over and over. But as the church of Jesus Christ, we really should expect nothing less. 
right? Jesus' words himself, he says, they hated me, so they will hate you. Right? That, is the, that is the word that Jesus gives us about uh, how the world is going to receive us by and large. The culture we live in today, especially many, and I'm, I'm stereotyping here, but uh, many of the intellectuals in our universities, uh, they think that, that Christians are silly. Right? They mock Christianity. Uh, they think that we're naive. Many people out there today make a goal Make it their, their, their duty to try to destroy the faith of our children that we send to those universities. Ironically, we spend tens of thousands of dollars hoping that our, that our kids will, will, will you know, gain some, an education and step into a career. And we have professors that we're paying trying to make shipwreck of the faith of our children. Christians are looked at today as anti-science, anti-women's rights, anti-real thought, anti-intellectual. And we're kind of put up with as long as our beliefs don't impose on those around us. But this is all to be expected. Right? The gospel has always been offensive to sinners because people want to be autonomous. People want to have the rule and authority over their own lives. We don't want anyone else to tell us what to do, to speak to how we should live. So I think not only should we not be surprised when we counter opposition and hostility similar to Jesus, but really we should expect it. And I might say, maybe I'm, I'm prodding here a little bit, maybe getting a little personal, but if we never face any pushback at all because of our faith from the world, then maybe we've become too silent and too passive. But we see much animosity uh, pointed towards Christ today in our text, and I I'm going to speculate here a little bit. It doesn't say this in the text, but it would seem that this might be confusing for the common person. There's this Jesus person and he's performing miracles. He's doing all these miraculous signs. He's preaching and teaching in a way that no man has ever done. They said he speaks with authority. No one's ever spoken like this. He, he's raising the dead. And yet the spiritual leaders of the day, the shepherds of the church, are rejecting him. They want, to, they want to see him put to death. They, 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 every chance of the way, they're trying to discredit him. And we see here again their hostility. They literally want him dead. Now, I think it's easy to gloss over those words because we've seen them so many times in the Bible. But when it says they picked up stones, this isn't some rock fight out in the schoolyard, right? It's not boys throwing pitching rocks at each other out in the backyard. But they would literally take a man push him down an embankment, push him down a hill, and hurl boulders, if they were merciful, at his skull until he perished. I mean, imagine if we put a team together and we were going to go witness out here in Phoenix or, or maybe out in Medford, share the gospel, pass out tracts, maybe do a little street preaching or whatever, and, all, and eventually a mob formed around us with, with weapons in their hands and murder on their mind. That's basically what's happening here with Christ over and over. And they've come to him again with this question. Tell us who you are. Tell us if you are Christ. And maybe I'm just a little bit uh, cynical. But I have a hard time believing that these folks are sincere with their questioning. Because he's told them many things about his deity over and over. John chapter 5, you remember, he called God his Father, claiming to be the Son of God. And they wanted to kill him because of that. Because he claimed that God was his Father. Also in John 5.39, talking about the Bible, he, the Old Testament, he told them, 
You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life, that you think it's in the pages. But he says, it is they, the Scriptures, that point to me. This point there was that if you don't find me in the Bible, then you've missed the whole point of the whole thing. He told them also in John 8, if you knew the Father, you would know me, but you don't know me, so you do not even know the Father. Another time in John 8, he told them that unless they would believe, he says that I am he, then you will die in your sins. Unless they believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they would die unforgiven without eternal life. And then the bombshell that he drops in John 8, verse 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Right? They, they would appeal to Abraham. Hey, we're descendants of Abraham. And he says, yeah, that guy that died 1,900 years ago, I existed before him, and by the way, I am. Now, those two words are very significant, right, in the Bible. Remember in Exodus 3, God begins to call Moses to lead the people out of Israel. And Moses says, you know, who am I supposed to say is sending me? What is your name? <clears throat> you remember what God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. And Jesus invokes the divine name there. And they knew very well what he meant because, again, they picked up stones seeking to take his life. But as we open up this text, uh, we see again Jesus is making claims, revealing to the people who he is. And I want to look firstly, as we get into the text, at the identity of the shepherd. The identity of the shepherd. And real quick, this, this teaching here, this question of who is Jesus is key, it's central, vital even, to Christian theology and to the gospel. The Bible exhorts Christians to teach and to hold to sound doctrine. Right? We see that over and over, that we should hold to sound doctrine. Paul in Ephesians 4, he ties Christian maturity to a knowledge of the truth, that mature believers are those that are grounded in the faith. This past week, we looked at this question of the identity of Christ in our midweek study, if you were here, and we talked about two main points. Number one, that Jesus is fully man, that he was really a human being. He had all the weaknesses and infirmities that we experience in this body. He slept, he wept, he got tired, he ate, all of those things. That's not being questioned here. What's being questioned is his divinity, is his deity. And we said also this at the study that he is fully God. That Jesus is fully God, and it's mentioned, I believe, or at least alluded to here four times. Look in verse 30 of John 10. As we look at the identity of the shepherd, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now we might read that and say, well, that can mean a lot of things. You know, I might say my wife and I are one. Our family, you know, we're one. The church here, yeah, we're really one. You know, we might use that language, but the Jews knew exactly what he meant, because look what they meant to do. They picked up stones again to stone him because he said that. Verse 36, he speaks of himself. And it, he says, me, him, who the Father consecrated and sent into the world. Jesus was set apart and sent into the world. And if he was sent into the world, it means at some point he was not in the world. He was somewhere else. He was with God. Also in verse 36, he cites himself from elsewhere and he says, I am the Son of God. Can't really get around that one, right? I am the Son of God. 
And then again in verse 38, he says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. As we think about the identity of the shepherd, I see three different aspects here. Uh, And the first one is the equality of the Son and the Father. That there is equality between Father and Son. They are equals. Again, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now this is a hotly kind of debated topic throughout church history. Uh, Is Jesus really fully God? Is He equal to the Father or is He something less? Uh, We talked about this this week. I threw out a big word. Uh, maybe somebody remember, remembers it, but it's a uh, the word was homoousios. And the church really wrestled with this idea, is Jesus homoousios, which just means same substance. Is He the same stuff as the Father? Or as some people were trying to say, is He homoousios? Now I know these are big words and it's like, what does this really mean? But the church wrestled with one single letter. One eye that changed the, the identity of Christ. Is He of the same substance as the Father? Or is He similar, but just a little bit less? Just a little bit different? He's an exalted man. He's an anointed man. But at some point, He had a beginning. Uh, but it says in Colossians chapter 2, and verse 9, that in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That Jesus is equal with the Father. There is equality there. He is, not, he is not less of God. He's not a smaller God, but Father and Son are co-equals. We see the equality of the Son and the Father. We also see the unity of the Son and Father. The unity. Verse 38, this half, he says that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. As we've seen this story unfold, we see that Jesus and the Father, and I'm going to add here, and the Spirit, always operate in perfect unity, perfect harmony with one another. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. They always were united in their mission. It was not the Father's will versus the Son will, Son's will, but they function with perfect unity. The Son is willingly giving His life to accomplish the redemption of His people. You remember just before the cross, Jesus prays and He says, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Let this cup pass. Is there any other way that this plan can be unfolded, can be accomplished other than the cross? But He says, nevertheless, not My will, but Your will be done. Their mission is always one. There is unity between Father and Son. And number three, as we think about the identity of this shepherd, we see the position of the Son with the Father. He is God's Son. It says that plainly in verse 36, citing himself from elsewhere, I am the Son of God. Now as we read that text, there's kind of a difficult piece of this passage that I want to look at real quick. I don't want to try to gloss over it. Uh, and that is verse 34. Verse 34, a lot of Christians have wrestled with the meaning of this and the passage that he cites. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. Little g gods. 
if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. So when the world is Jesus, is he talking about here? Is he alluding to? Well, he's, he's, he's citing Psalm 82, and I don't want to get derailed too much here, so I'm not going to turn there. I encourage you to check it out this afternoon as you open up the Word. But he's citing Psalm 82, and there's a passage there where God calls people that are not God, He calls humans, He calls them gods, little g-gods. But then He tells them that they will die just like all mortal men do, just like normal princes do. And Jesus' point is that there is a place in the Scripture where God calls people gods, and the, the men here, they're not taking issue with that passage, but he says, but then you look at me, the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, and you tell me I'm a blasphemer because I'm calling myself the Son of God. So he appeals to that old text to say, you don't have a problem with it there. Why are you accusing me of being a blasphemer because I call myself uh, the Son of God? But his position uh, with the Father is that he is his Son. Colossians 1.15, we read that He is the image of the invisible God, the, the, the full, visible manifestation of God Himself, and the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. He is the prototokos. Uh, and this word firstborn has been misunderstood. Oftentimes people read it and say, see, Jesus was created. Yes, He was first, but at some point He was he was born. He was the first one, and then God did everything else through him. Jehovah's Witnesses would teach you that. But firstborn, or prototokos, is not about time, and it's not about, but it's about rank or standing. Jesus is the preeminent one over all of creation. As God's Son, He has the top rank or top standing, or He is superior over everything else because He is the divine second person of the Trinity. So maybe you're thinking, you know, why is this such a big deal? Why do, we, why do we always harp on the fact that Jesus is God? Is it really that important that we have this thing nailed down and have it accurate? Well, my wife is telling me yes. Um, and I, yes, uh, it is, right? And I want to give a few reasons. Why is it important that we have sound doctrine, that we have our theology right, that we understand what the Bible teaches well, I mentioned this text earlier, but number one, Paul ties maturity to knowledge of Christ. He says, until we all attain, until the knowledge of the Son of God, this is Ephesians 4.13, till we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God and mature manhood, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So the mature Christian is one who is growing in and is grounded in biblical truth. is one that has an understanding of the Bible's theology, of what the gospel is, of what the way of salvation is, of who Jesus is. So number one, maturity is tied in the Scripture in many places to a grasp of sound doctrine, to having right thinking and understanding the Scripture. Number two, it is important that we have sound doctrine, that we understand who Jesus is, uh, so that we not get led astray. So that we do not get led astray. 
as he said there, that we would no longer, you see the growth and maturity, that we would no longer be children that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And you picture a, a little tiny boat in a big storm and it's just getting tossed back and forward. It has no stability. It has no control. It can't really direct and steer and aim itself. And there are many believers that have a tendency to kind of get swept up in every theological fad that, that comes along. Uh, whatever book or new idea that the local Christian bookstore is trying to sell and they're swept up for a moment get really excited about this just to be carried along to the next and to the next and to the next. Uh, but to be grounded in biblical teaching is to be grounded in our faith. When we know what it is that we believe, we can be have assurance and have security so that when false teaching comes our way, when errant teaching comes our way, when things that are off, we have, as I think it's a writer to the Hebrews says, our powers of discernment are strong. And lastly, and I think most important, why is it so um, serious that we understand rightly who Jesus is? Because only the Christ of the Bible saves. Only the Christ of the Bible saves. A biblical Christ equals an unbiblical gospel. And Paul says that any other gospel is no gospel at all. Right? If you read Galatians, he is adamant about this. He says, if you add, if you tell someone that they have to be circumcised to be saved, then that is a false gospel and it's no gospel at all. Simply adding the addition of circumcision, add some Jewish stuff back to the gospel, he said, that, that is not a gospel at all. It's a false gospel. So if, if that, I would say, fairly small thing means you don't have the gospel, then if we don't have Jesus right, if we don't have the Savior right, then we don't have the gospel at all. Many man-made religions, many cults believe in a Jesus. Right? Muslims believe in a Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the Scripture, but in the Quran, Jesus is a prophet sent by God. He plays a big role in their eschatology, in their end times events, but He's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons call Jesus their Savior. But they don't have the biblical gospel, and their Jesus is one that they have constructed in their own understanding, not from the Scripture's presentation. Only the Christ of the Bible saves. And that Christ is fully man and also fully God. We turn now to the reason then to trust Him. Jesus makes these claims, but then He seeks to back up His claims with His works. And he says that the reason to take him at his word is because of the signs that he does. Because of the miracles that he does. Because of the things that he can do. Look with me in verse 25. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. The things that I'm doing reveal and show who I am. That my statements are true. Verse 38, he says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now we see this all the time throughout Scripture that when God wants to confirm His messenger, that God wants to confirm that a prophet has really been sent from Him, He does so by revealing His power through that person, by performing signs and wonders. 
Right? We see this uh, with Moses. Right? When Moses goes to Pharaoh, the signs and wonders are there to, to declare, to reveal the glory of the true God. To say, hey, this is, you need to turn, you need to listen. And the signs and wonders prove his words are true. Well, we see this often through Elijah and Elisha. Remember the, the uh, battle of the false gods on Mount, on Mount Carmel when, when Elijah has all of the prophets of, the, of Baal raise an altar and he raises an altar to God and they're dancing around and they're cutting themselves and they're crying out to their God and nothing comes from heaven. And Elijah even goes as far as to dump vats of water on his sacrifice. All this water soaks the wood Praise one time and God just wicks that thing up, brings fire from heaven. God was declaring this man and his word is my mouth. And we see that here. He does the same through Jesus. Because only God can turn water to wine. Amen? Only God can multiply fish and loaves and feed 5,000 plus men and women from a little lunch. Only God can heal the sick. Only God can heal the lame. Only God can give sight to the blind. Only God can cleanse lepers. Only God can make a paralyzed man stand up and walk. Only God can control the winds and the waves. And only God can raise the dead by His voice. And only God can come back from the dead. Amen. The miracles that Jesus does, He says, they they confirm His deity. They declare that He truly is the Son of God. And I think there's an application for us here. uh, Because... You know, there's times in life where, where doubt maybe arises. Uh, maybe there's times where our faith in Jesus is, is a bit shaky. Maybe we wouldn't want to admit that to others, something we keep to ourselves. But maybe you're just struggling with a bad case of the what ifs. You know, what if this was to happen? What if this does to happen? Or what about this? What about that? But when we have those doubts, as Jesus tells these folks here, Don't look only at my words, but look at the works. Look at all that Jesus has accomplished. He spoke and a dead man came out of the grave. And he was not dead for five minutes. It wasn't a declared dead on the table, brought right back to life. But he was dead for four days. His organs were were, were rotting and dried out and decaying. His blood was coagulated. Rigor mortis had set in. There was no breath in his lungs. And Jesus spoke. And his blood started to circulate and Air became to breathe in his lungs and his heart began to beat simply by his word. When we have a tendency to have shaky faith or maybe to doubt the things that we read, we must look to the works and look to the greatest work, the cross. No man could, could, could give his life and then raise his own self from the dead to be seen by, by more than 500 men. And if this thing was a hoax, if Jesus really died, then Christianity is, is done in the first century. People die for a, for a dead Savior, for a, for a made-up story. If people really didn't see Jesus risen from the grave, then Christianity, like any other false belief, like any other Jim Jones, is gone, right? As quick as it sprouts up. But we see the perseverance of the Christian faith for 2,000 years because the claims that Jesus makes are true and the works that He did were seen by many. He is God, fully divine, and his, his works that He does substantiate His words. And lastly, though, I want to see here the perfect work of this shepherd. I think this is really the heart of the passage, the heart of the text, and kind of that soul-feeding section of the Scripture. 
The perfect work of the shepherd. Uh, Look at verse 25. (coughs) Jesus answered them. So He speaks to the Pharisees here, or the Jews. And they're not believing His words. They're not believing the things that He says. And and look what He says to them. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me, but you do not believe. And then He gives them the reason. Because you are not among my sheep. He did this last time, something similar, another section of John 10. But he calls them out for their unbelief, and then he tells them why it is that they don't believe. And the reason that he gives is because they are not of his sheep. As he says, his sheep hear his voice, his sheep respond to his call. These folks are not of his flock. They are not His sheep, so they do not heed His call. It doesn't excuse them uh, for their unbelief. They are accountable for their rejection of Him. But that is the reason that Jesus gives. You are not among My sheep, and that is why you have not believed. Uh, But then He speaks to His own sheep, to His own flock. And His sheep do respond to His call. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is one of those passages that is a cause for great assurance for the Christian. Great peace and great hope for the Christian, because my preserving in the faith, my, my, my staying faithful to Christ to the end, and your preserving in the faith is based upon Christ, and it is based upon the power of God. Notice he says, no one snatches them out of my hand. When they respond to my call, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. A few things we see here. Number one, that his call is effectual. His call is effectual. It is effective. It accomplishes what He sets out to purpose. When Jesus calls His sheep to Himself, they respond in faith. They hear the voice of their shepherd. That means that you, beloved, you responded to that Gospel call because you heard the voice of your shepherd. You were His sheep. He says, even before you recognized Him to be your shepherd. As we see in Ephesians 1, Paul says that we were chosen, Christians were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless in His sight to the praise of His glorious grace. And I don't believe this is a doctrine to be scoffed at or or, or, or revolted by but it's cause for great assurance that God placed His love upon you, that God was pursuing you before you ever knew Him, before you ever responded to the Gospel. He was was calling you to Himself. And we see here in in this section that the call of the shepherd, it is effectual. His grace is irresistible. Now, this text is speaking of salvation, but I think that we can make some application here that 
that Christians follow the voice of their shepherd. That believers are those that heed and, and that read the word of God. As David says, if you read Psalm 119, uh, your law, your commandments, your rules, your statutes, he says, are my delight. I delight in them. It is your command, it is your word that teaches me how to please you, that teaches me how to glorify you, that teaches me the, the right way to live, that it might go well with my life. His commands are not burdensome. Right? The sheep are those that follow the voice of their shepherd, that love to hear his word, that respond to his call. And I encourage every sheep, every believer, to have a steady diet of the voice of the shepherd. To, to heed His call. To, to hear from, from your Lord in His Word as He's preserved it for us. See, His call is effectual. Number two, we see that salvation that He gives. He says it is eternal. It is eternal. Look, at, look with me at verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Never perish. There is so much hope in those words. Eternal life, too, it's not just about time. right? Because every soul is going to live for eternity. Every person that's ever been born has an eternal soul, will live forever. But eternal life is more about a quality of life. It's about eternity in the very presence of God, receiving the fullness of all of His blessings. I, as I was here this week, I had a one of the reasons I like to be here is because sometimes people just come in off the street. It doesn't happen all the time, but but now and then uh, someone just comes in off the street. And I was here on Friday, and and a man came in, big man, you know, big big guy, tears streaming down his face, and uh, shared some stuff with me about a medical condition, and and he was and he was really scared. For some of the things that he was going through and, and kind of had a background, some in the church, you know, he kind of knew um, denominational things and he had some stereotypes of Baptist. You know, we are those that hate, hate alcohol was kind of his impression of, of Baptist. Um, but what I saw, the main thing I saw is that he knew some stuff about church. He knew some stuff about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus and he didn't have hope. He didn't have this sort of peace. He didn't understand eternal life that no matter what faces us, we can know that we will be in the very presence of God. And as I tried to encourage him, I did the only thing that I, that I knew to do. I, I shared Christ with him. Right? I tried to tell him about the hope of the God because the, the eternal life says that he gives, it is forever. Christians will never perish. Those that he holds in his hand, no one will ever snatch them out. The salvation that Jesus offers is eternal. And, and I'm not going to share his name because he might come here one day, but I want to encourage you to pray for this man. The Lord knows who he is. Pray that he might find Christ. Pray that he might find hope in the cross of Jesus. Uh, just really going through a hard time. We see that his salvation is eternal. Jesus says, my sheep will never perish. And then number three, we see that his people are those that persevere, that persevere uh, to the end. Verse 28, no one, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christians persevere because Jesus preserves them. I want to say that again. Christians persevere because Jesus preserves them. Philippians 1.6 says that He who began that good work in you is faithful to do what? To complete it, right? To perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Those that He calls and those that He gives eternal life, He protects like a good shepherd who guards His flock from ravenous wolves. Those that would seek to come and steal and kill and destroy. You remember in Luke's Gospel when Jesus was telling Peter that He would forsake him? He says, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has come and he has demanded you. And he has sought to sift you like wheat. And what does Jesus say? He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We see Jesus there interceding and protecting his flock, praying for for Peter's faith that it might not fail, that Satan would not have a stronghold in, uh, in, in Peter's life. The word is clear here that no one can snatch away a child of God from the very hand of Jesus. So Christian, you can know that you are in Christ. You can have great assurance, great faith. You can stand on the rock that is Christ and know there is nothing, as we see in Romans 8, that can separate you from His love. There is no one that can snatch you out of His hand. Some might say, but. But. We can jump out. Right? We can jump out of His hand. Right? That is often the objection to this passage. Yes, no one can take us away, but some might say, but we can jump out of His hand. And I want to push back on that. I want to say, no. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they never perish. My sheep never perish. It says in John 6 that all that have been given by the Father to the Son, the Son raises up on the last day. He says, I will lose none. Not snatched away and not fallen away. Think about what happens at salvation. God grants uh, the the new birth. He, He takes out that heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh in His promise. What is the down payment promise that He gives for for our inheritance? It is His very Spirit that He breathes into us. As it says in Ephesians 1, it is a, a down payment for the inheritance that is promised. He takes that heart of stone. He gives the heart of flesh. He makes us a new creation in Christ. Somehow the, the believer will just depart from that and walk away. I take Jesus at His word. That those that He gives eternal life, they never perish. His work of salvation is perfect. Every time He starts a good work in any person, He is faithful to complete that work. All that to say, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior. All that the Father gives Him, He says, I will raise up on the last day. So Christian, you will face many trials and tribulation. That's a promise we have in the Bible. You will suffer hardship. You will struggle daily just in the grind of life. 
getting through the day, making ends meet. But may we all find that rock to stand on in Jesus. May we find that firm foundation in our great Shepherd that never wavers. So when times are difficult, when you're tempted to look at yourself, and when you do that and find there only weakness and imperfect faith, cast your eyes to the Shepherd of your soul. Remember that He is God. Remember the mighty works that He has done. And remember that no one can snatch you out of His loving grasp. Amen.